Good day and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the C3AI first quarter fiscal year 2022 earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your first speaker today, Mr. Paul Phillips, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Good afternoon and welcome to C3AI's earnings call for the first quarter of fiscal year 2022, which ended July 31st, 2021. Um, this is Paul Phillips, Vice President of Investor Relations of C3AI, and with me on the call today are Tom Siebel, Chairman and CEO, and Dave Barter, CFO. After the market closed today, we issued a press release with details regarding our first quarter results, as well as a supplement to our results, both of which can be accessed on the IR section of our website at ir.c3.ai. This call is being webcast, and a replay will be available on our IR website following the conclusion of the call. During today's call, we will make statements relating to our business that may be considered forward-looking under federal securities laws. These statements reflect our views only as of today, and should not be considered representative of our views as of any subsequent date. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking statements or outlook. These statements are subject to a variety of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. For a further discussion of the material risks and other important factors that could affect our actual results, please refer to our filings with the SEC. Also during the course of today's call, we'll refer to certain non-GAAP financial measures. A reconciliation of GAAP to non-GAAP measures is included in our press release. Finally, at times in our prepared comments, in response to your questions, we may discuss metrics that are incremental to our usual presentation to provide greater insight into the dynamics of our business or our quarterly results. Please be advised that we may or may not continue to provide this additional detail in the future. With that, let me turn the call over to Tom for his prepared remarks. Tom? Okay, thank you, Paul. And good afternoon, everyone. I am most pleased to provide you an update on our first quarter results and provide some comments on the state of the business as we see it. We posted another set of strong results in the first quarter. We continue to make great progress in solidifying our position as the pure play enterprise AI application software company. Our progress continues as planned on track. Our products are powering some of the world's largest enterprise AI application deployments. As we extend our production footprint across industries and regions globally. Our first quarter performance was a strong start to the new fiscal year. Let's look at some of the financial and business highlights. Total revenue for the quarter was 52.4 million up from 40.5 million a year ago, an increase of 29% year over year. Subscription revenue was 46.1 million, up from 35.7 million one year ago, an increase of 29% year over year. Non-GAAP gross profit was 40.9 million, a 78% gross margin compared to 30.2 million gross profit, a 75% gross margin a year earlier. This was an increase in gross margin 
of 35% year-over-year. Our remaining performance obligations, or RPO, was $290.6 million compared to $275.1 million a year ago, an increase of 6% year-over-year. Non-GAAP RPO was $357.3 million compared to $279.5 million a year ago, an increase of 28% year-over-year. We ended the quarter with 89 enterprise AI customers, an increase of 85% year-over-year. As we have previously discussed, historically, our business has been characterized by quarter-to-quarter lumpiness due to the substantial size of our average order value. Now, as as application sales become an increasingly large part of our revenue mix, roughly 50% of our subscriptions last quarter in Q1 accrued from application software. We are increasingly offering lower-priced, high-value products like C3 AI CRM and Ex Machina. And as we've discussed, we've been diversifying our distribution model to complement enterprise selling with telesales, distributors, market partners, and direct marketplace selling. While we have not yet fully eliminated the lumpiness from our business model, we have made great progress with average subscription total contract value shrinking from $16.2 million in fiscal year 19 to $12.1 million in fiscal year 20 to $7.2 million in fiscal year 21 to $4.5 million in the quarter ended July 31st. It's my expectation that this average contract value will continue to increase going forward as we continue to add diversity to both our product mix and our distribution model. Our average revenue per customer in the first quarter was $535,000. Let's talk about our market partner ecosystem. We significantly expanded this partner ecosystem in Q1, entering an important, highly strategic alliance with Google Cloud to allow the entire Google Cloud global sales and service organization to co-sell and service the entire family of C3 AI applications globally. The two companies will tightly integrate C3 AI and Google Cloud technologies and go-to-market initiatives with the effect of accelerating enterprise AI adoption. The comprehensive alliance includes coordinated software development roadmaps, tight product integration, as well as joint selling, joint marketing, and joint customer success programs at global scale. C3 AI and Google Cloud will regularly synchronize our software engineering roadmaps and activities to ensure that the Google Cloud, Google Cloud applications, and the C3 AI suite and AI enterprise applications are fully optimized and tightly integrated. The companies will engage in significant ongoing marketing development activities and will coordinate sales and service activities globally to assist small, medium, and large enterprise customers to accelerate the adoption and time to value of their enterprise cloud AI applications. We expect this partnership 
will dramatically accelerate the adoption of enterprise AI applications across all industry segments and will prove an additional growth engine for C3 AI. Microsoft. Our partnership, our strategic partnership with Microsoft continues to expand. To date, we have closed more than $200 million in business with Microsoft. Our joint teams are currently working a pipeline of more than $350 million in specific opportunities. Recent wins with Microsoft include the United States Missile Defense Agency, Cargill, Ball, Cummins, the United States Air Force Rapid Sustainment Office, uh, and we continue to make great strides in the market in Europe, in North America, in, in federal, and it is a you know, very, very important relationship. C3 AI CRM. We are seeing increased interest in the C3 AI CRM family of applications that address the currently installed investments of CRM systems. Estimated that these and these investments are estimated to be well in excess of $500 billion. When you think about it, you know C3 CRM sales and software sales this year will be $120 billion this year alone. So, you know, we put some number of years of investment, so, you know, from Salesforce, Siebel, SAP, uh, Dynamics, Accenture, PwC, Deloitte, et cetera, this is, you know, there's no way you don't get to a number greater than a half a billion dollar installed, half a trillion dollar installed base. Now, with C3AI CRM, companies can easily upgrade their existing Salesforce deployments, their Dynamics deployments, Siebel deployments, ServiceNow, Viva, SAP, CRM, and, and retain those investments, but at the same time make them fully predictive, including now precise AI revenue forecasting, AI product forecasting, next best product, next best offer, customer attention, and customer satisfaction management. As you can imagine, we are seeing really substantial interest from the large system integration partners that see this as an opportunity to upgrade and add additional services into their existing CRM installed base. And so you can expect from this to see additional market partner announcements in, the, in, in this area in, you know, in the coming quarters. Customer momentum. We expanded our enterprise AI footprint in the first quarter in defense, in chemicals, in financial services, manufacturing, oil and gas, energy, sustainability, and utilities. We have, you know, new, quite significant enterprise production deployments went live at Lion Delta Cell, Shell, Engie, and Con Edison. We initiated new enterprise AI projects with Baker Hughes, Ball Corporation, Cargill, Cummins, Engie, FIS. Coke Industries, the Missile Defense Agency, Morse Code, and Standard Chartered Bank. And we significantly expanded business with Cargill, Lionsdale Bissell, and Standard Chartered Bank. In the course of the quarter, uh, we continued to advance our product leadership position in Enterprise AI. In the first quarter, we released two major upgrades to the C3 AI suite, and we have now released 40 enterprise AI software applications into production for banking, for manufacturing, for telecommunications, public sector, energy, utilities, defense, and intelligence. We also released a new version of C3 AI Energy Management, 
our solution that helps enterprise control and mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and manage energy consumption and energy costs. And we launched C3 AI X Machina, our no-code AI and analytics platform that anyone can use, and continue to deliver new features to enhance and simplify the user experience. We, we, we gained, you know, quite a bit of additional industry recognition in the course of the quarter. C3 AI was named uh, the leader in the IDC marketscape worldwide for industrial IoT applications. Uh, the C3 IDC marketplace positioned C3 AI uh, as the leader uh, for, you know, in being a pla as an AI platform provider. Importantly, our customer at the Air Force Rapid Sustainment Office was selected as a finalist for the Constellation Supernova AI and Data Award. This is the highest honor in enterprise AI application excellence, and this is an award that was won last year by C3AI customer Shell for its C3AI enterprise AI accomplishments in production use. We continue to grow our enterprise AI production application footprint through both new customer acquisitions and expanded use by existing customers. We had 101 discrete applications in production at the end of the first quarter, up from 67 a year earlier. Operating at massive scale as of the end of the first quarter, uh, uh, the C3 AI suite and applications were integrated with roughly 850 unique enterprise and enterprise data sources. We're processing 1.7 billion predictions per day. We're managing 24 in excess of 24 trillion data elements and evaluating in excess of 33 billion machine learning features daily. We've been doing a lot of work, as you've seen in the media and online, in brand awareness, and we considerably extended our brand leadership for enterprise AI, capturing both the number one and number two internet search positions for that category in the first quarter. And we, we, we exceeded the next closest competitor by a factor of three to one. Uh, C3AI Digital Transformation Institute, I want to make a few comments about that important initiative. We continue to invest in our important university partnerships at UC Berkeley, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Princeton, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, the University of Chicago, and KTH in Sweden with the C3AI Digital Transformation Institute. In, in the first quarter, we announced and funded $4.4 million, okay, in initial cash awards to support 21 kind of groundbreaking research projects focusing on using the C3 platform, okay, and the developing new AI techniques to advance energy efficiency and lead the way to a lower carbon, higher efficiency economy. We've been doing a lot of work really in focusing in leadership and sales leadership in the company, importantly with the addition of former uh, VMware and SAP executive Sam Alcarat as President and Chief Revenue Officer to lead the global expansion of C3AI's sales and customer service organizations. Sam is an experienced and proven sales executive with a long track record of building and managing highly effective sales and customer service teams. Sam 
previously served as a senior vice president and global head of sales for VMware's Tansu portfolio of applications. That was roughly a billion dollar software business. And prior to VMware, Sheldon held a number of um, senior executive positions at SAP. We human capital. We continue to be just extraordinarily fortunate in the quality of human capital that we're able to attract from leading universities and from other organizations globally. In the first quarter, believe it or not, we received just shy of 6,200, I'm sorry, 9,200 employment applications, okay? And from that, I think we interviewed 1,500 people and added 54 net new employees. And the people are as bright and experienced as they get. We ended the quarter with 628 full-time employees. And as you can see on the Internet, C3AI continues to be ranked amongst the best places in the world to work by Glassdoor. So in summary, the enterprise AI application software market is rapidly growing. We see accelerating interest in our applications across industries, geographies, and market segments. We are aggressively investing to extend our product and technology leadership, to expand our market partner ecosystem, and the associated distribution capacity uh, that comes along with that ecosystem. As we continue to execute in delivering high-value outcomes for our customers, we are increasingly well-positioned to establish a global leadership position in enterprise AI application software. Bottom line, our performance in the first quarter was strong across the board, and we're planning for continued growth in this year and accelerating growth next year. Overall, I would say the progress of the company is exactly on track with the plan that we laid out for you during, before the IPO and during the IPO and as updated in the past two quarters. I believe the company has never been better positioned to achieve its objective of establishing a clear market leadership position in enterprise AI application software globally. I'll now turn this over to our CFO, David Barter, for more color on the quarter. David. Thank you, Tom. We delivered another strong performance in the first quarter with revenue and profitability that exceeded our guidance. We ended the quarter with a healthy contractual backlog. It provides us with meaningful revenue coverage and it supports our growth ambitions. Revenue was $52.4 million, an increase of 29% year over year. Subscription revenue was $46.1 million, an increase of 29% year over year. This level of growth represents a substantial increase from the fourth quarter when subscription revenue grew 17% year over year. Professional services revenue in Q1 was $6.3 million. Subscription revenue represented 88% of total revenue in the quarter. This is an increase of six percentage points from Q4. We continue to expect our mix of subscription revenue to trend in the high 80% range. Our revenue growth was highlighted by continued diversification and broad-based strength in our industry verticals. Five 
industry verticals each contributed over 10% of our revenue this quarter. This includes the financial services industry vertical, which grew 45% year-over-year. Geographically, our revenue diversification also improved. During the first quarter, revenue from customers in EMEA and APAC grew 37% year-over-year and represented over 30% of our revenue. From a backlog perspective, total remaining performance obligations were $290.6 million, up 6% year-over-year, and current RPO, which we expect to recognize over the next 12 months, was $145 million, an increase of 10% from a year ago. We ended the quarter with an additional $66.7 million in backlog from contracts with a cancellation right. When combined with our GAAP RPO, we ended the quarter with non-GAAP RPO of $357.3 an increase of 28% from a year ago. As I noted last quarter, our non-GAAP RPO does not include any backlog associated with Baker Hughes that does not have an existing end customer contract. The Baker Hughes commitment at the end of the first quarter represented an additional $204.4 million of backlog. In the first quarter, total revenue from our partnership with Baker Hughes was $16.1 million, up 69% year-over-year. As a reminder, a portion of this revenue is reported as related party revenue, where the end customer contracted directly with Baker Hughes or where their revenue relates to Baker Hughes as a customer. The total amount included in related party revenue was $12.3 million in the first quarter. Turning to expenses and profitability, I will be referring to non-GAAP metrics, which excludes stock-based compensation expense and the employer portion of payroll tax expense related to stock transactions. A gap to non-gap reconciliation is provided with our earnings press release. Gross margin in the first quarter was 78%, up 340 basis points from a year ago. The margin expansion reflects the strong growth of our subscriptions. Subscription gross margin in Q1 was 81.8%. This compares favorably to Q4 when margin was 80.7% and a year ago when it was 76.5%. The persistent margin expansion illustrates the leverage generated by our operating model. Operating expenses were $62.6 million compared to $31.1 million a year ago, reflecting planned strategic investments to drive our long-term growth. Operating loss was $21.8 million in the first quarter, and better than our guidance of an operating loss of 28 to $35 million. We continue to invest thoughtfully in headcount and programs to accelerate our revenue growth. Turning to our balance sheet and cash flows, we ended the quarter with $1.09 billion in cash, cash equivalents, and investments. We generated positive operating cash flow of $1 million in the first quarter, and with capital expenditures of $1 million free cash flow was break-even for the quarter. Deferred revenue grew to $99.9 million, up a very healthy 33% from the fourth quarter. It's important to note that two deals closed in the first quarter included a structure and billing terms that led to less deferred revenue than our typical deals. All in all, Q1 nicely built on a very strong fourth quarter and supports our confidence for the remainder of the year. 
Turning to our guidance for the second quarter and the full fiscal year, in Q2, we expect total revenue in the range of $56 to $58 million, representing growth of 35 to 40%, and an acceleration in top-line growth from the first quarter and prior fiscal year. We anticipate subscription revenue mix will continue to trend in the high 80% range. We expect to make growth investments and anticipate a non-GAAP operating loss in the range of $30 to $37 million. For full fiscal year 2022, we continue to expect revenue in the range of $243 to $247 million, representing growth of 33 to 35%, with a focus on making thoughtful growth-oriented investments over the balance of the year to accelerate our growth, we anticipate a non-GAAP operating loss in the range of $107 to $119 million. In summary, we delivered first quarter results that were above our guidance coupled with healthy sales activity. We believe we are well positioned to meet the increasing demand for our technology from customers who realize significant economic benefit from deploying our solutions and remain optimistic about our ability to penetrate a very substantial opportunity over the long term. Thank you for joining today's call. Now I'll turn the call over to the operator for questions. Operator? As a reminder to ask a question over the phone line, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, that is star then the number one. To withdraw your question, press the pound or the hash key. And then we also ask the analysts to limit themselves to asking one question and one follow-up each only. Thank you. Your first question comes from the line of Michael Turitz from KeyBank. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Um, I wanted to ask you, Tom, about the diversification uh, down market and to more of run rate business that you discussed. Sounds like you've made good progress on reducing the, the TCO um, and uh, TCD, excuse me. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're doing to get yourself there? Are you adding more people? You talked a little bit about partnerships. And, and how much progress are you actually making with Ex Machina to get you there also? Uh, thank you, Michael. I think a lot of it is really we're seeing – we saw a dramatic uh, increase. We're seeing an increase in your know, application software versus platform as, as uh, a component of our revenue mix. And the applications – you know, the applications sell for – you know, substantially less money than the platform does. So that's a big contributor. Uh, Ex Machina is, you know, is making a positive contribution to it, but I really would expect to see that kick in, you know, in the fourth quarter of this year and next year and in, in getting into big numbers. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's mostly a move towards, you know, applications are what is moving the moving the needle on uh, bringing the TCB down. And it's come down substantially. Again, it's come from a couple of years ago. It was $16 million average TCB. And last quarter, it was four and a half. So we're making good progress. Great. Thanks, Tom. And, and then, Dave, a couple comments on uh, the always fascinating RPO calculation. So RPO, um, uh, the, the gap RPO just declined slightly sequentially. And if I add all the pieces together, the the adjusted total 
did also. But but the one that, that looked like it was up sequentially was that, that cancelable piece, which I, I think is mostly government. So can you talk about what the, the puts and takes are on, on those different components of, of RPO? Absolutely, Michael, and uh, thank you for your question. You're right. When we think about structuring our deals, we do include that cancelable portion because it is a, a right and it, it's a piece of flexibility that with the literature it gets carved out of GAAP, and so we find that GAAP RPO is an incomplete measure, which is why we provide you with the non-GAAP RPO, which increased 28%. In terms of the adjusted RPO, with, which includes the Baker Hughes component, you might remember that that's a, a five-year commitment. So when it, it first signed, you got the, the step up, and then it amortizes over time, which is why that is not increasing when you think about the adjusted RPO. So the non-GAAP RPO really is the measure you should look at because it's reflective of our commercial activity. Right. And the, the, cance, the cancelable piece that – oh, I'm sorry to interrupt if I did it. Um, this is the cancelable piece that, that went up really nicely sequentially from 51, it looks like, uh, up to uh, 66 by doing that. But is that, is that expressive of just some strong government contracts? No, those are – Michael, hi, it's Tom. No, those are almost all – those are exclusively non-government. So the, the government contracts are always, by definition, kind of 12 months in duration. Okay, even even if it's funded for multi-years, the, the part that's irrevocable, non-refundable, is only 12 months at a time. So the cancelable deals are tend to be where we do three or four or five-year transactions with a large, you know, uh, private sector corporation where – if it's not going well after the first year, they have the right to cancel. And so you can be certain that we have, you know, every incentive to make sure that customer is highly satisfied at the end of the first year. Okay. And uh, so there's, there's almost no public sector in there. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. And, and Michael, you, you raise a great point. When we're signing multi-year federal contracts, that's over and above this number. Okay. That's, not that's, not, that's, not, that's not recorded here at all, and so we actually do have quite a few of those. We have multi-year federal agreements, and because the way that the GSA, the, you know, those contracts work, you know, we, we don't report that at all. So that's not, that would be on top of anything that we've reported. Got it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. Thanks, Mike. Your next question comes from the line of Mark Murphy from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Yes, thank you very much, and I'll have my congrats. Uh, so, Tom, um, I wanted to ask you about the Google Cloud uh, relationship and just whether you're expecting that to appeal to a different type of customer, uh, because I think you know, we're aware that the Google Cloud platform has different architecture. There's more private cable. Uh, they have, you know, larger pipes. They can absorb more traffic. There's more local points of presence. I'm just wondering if it fits a different need, maybe uh, certain verticals or machine learning models that are maybe a little more demanding in some ways. Well, you know, the, this Thomas Crane has really changed the uh, nature of Google Cloud in a big way, as you're well aware. I think they've gone from maybe 400 salespeople of a couple of years ago who were kind of in middleware salespeople to order of 4,000 salespeople today. And these are kind of experienced enterprise sales men and women. Uh, their focus is very much on the enterprise. Um, 
I don't think it's that different. It's just that Thomas has, has made a decision, a very conservative decision, to approach the market in a different way. So rather than the other hyperscalers, and rather than sell CPU seconds and storage hours, which, you know, and, and they have an, an argument that, you know, I won't go into and I'm not really qualified, but, you, know, they, you know, they've argued successfully that what they do is technically superior to other people. Maybe it's true, I don't know. Okay, but rather than, rather than compete based upon speed, speeds and feeds, they've made a decision that they're going to compete based upon applications. So they're going to be selling stochastic optimization of the supply chain. Uh, they're going to be selling uh, supply network risk. They're going to be selling anti-monitoring, monitoring, fraud detection, what have you. And that's just how, this is how they're positioning their company as a deliverer of turnkey solutions. And we're very fortunate that they decided to partner with us in that, in that effort. Well, this gives them kind of a unique position in the hyperscaling market, okay? We're in, in the hyperscale market where they're selling turnkey applications and everybody else is selling CPU seconds. Now, the net result of these applications is when they're up and running, they do nothing but consume CPU seconds and, and storage hours. But it's a, you know, it's, I think we're seeing a, a changing dynamic in the hyperscale market that you might want to take a look at. I think that's what's going on. Okay, understood. And then um, as, uh, as a quick follow-up, the, there's a comment regarding the Microsoft relationship that uh, you've closed deals worth over $200 million, uh, to date, obviously a great accomplishment. And I was just wondering, if, uh, maybe, maybe David or Tom, you could clarify, uh, is that a specific reference to the, the CRM use case um, that you mentioned uh, with Dynamics and other systems, or is that all of the C3 deployments of, of any product that are that are running on Azure? And, and if you could just clarify, what is that? Is that 200 million sitting in the RPO balance? Some, some of it is. Most of it is. Uh, first of all, it is not specifically CRM, uh, Mark. Okay, it really all of our applications support Azure. Okay, Microsoft has been enormously supportive and providing technical support to make sure we take full advantage of all the Azure resources. They are a great partner. Uh, a very small component of it is CRM, and it's, these are commercial applications. These are federal applications, you know, supply chain, um, predictive maintenance. This is kind of bread and butter stuff, and most of it is sitting in RPO. Got it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Sanjit Singh from Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Uh, thank you for taking the questions. Tom, with this sort of um, shift towards an applications-focused strategy um, uh, versus kind of the C3A suite as the business shifts more towards application, what does that imply in terms of future revenue growth? Because if I look at the growth in your um, – and the number of applications is up really solidly, I think 50% plus, versus your RPO growth of, you know, in the high 20s. Does that mean that over time you should see RPO growth um, sort of converge to the growth in sort of um, the application sales that you're sort of, sort of seeing? Okay. We're kind of keeping – there's kind of some analytic math here that I can't quite keep up with, okay? But let me – so, Sanjit, first of all, this – 
our emphasis on applications is not new. No, there's no change here at all. Okay, so we've been selling. I mean, you were so you will recall during the IPO roadshow, I was leading with applications, applications mm-hmm. for for uh, uh, for utilities, oil and gas companies, manufacturing companies, uh, financial services companies, what have you. And so there's no change in our emphasis. We sell both applications and we sell the platform, and uh, and we kind of. Sell whatever the market whatever the market wants that this quarter, and I wish I could give you guys some guidance. Okay, got it going forward, but we we took a hard look at the data um, uh, uh, yesterday in anticipation of kind of this question of what we're going to expect to be you know, applications versus platform in coming quarters, and it, it just jumps around so much from quarter to quarter that we can't tell you that. But but there is no. No change in emphasis and applications on our part. Okay, we're 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 always led with applications. Uh, there is certainly a change on the part of Google's part, and it just happens to bode very well for us. Thanks, total sense, Tom. Uh, maybe a, a follow-up question on the Google partnership. Um, how should we think about that as the opportunity? Is this about going for net new customers or? Is there a certain percentage of the 80 or 98 enterprise customers that you have today that are Google Cloud customers? Any, any sort of sense of what the overlap is between C3 and and Google within your current customer base? Yeah, I'd say a relatively small, a very small segment of our existing customers are Google customers. Google, as you know, is number three in the market to uh, AWS and um, and Azure, but they are by far the most rapidly growing. And so, uh, and they're closing, you know, some very large accounts like, you know, Walmart and Deutsche Telekom and others. And you can say mm-hmm. from our perspective, this is really a focus on, this is a focus on net new customers from for us. Uh, from them, it's a focus on both net new customers and um, provided the customers the applications they want to consume the commitments they've made to Google. Makes perfect sense. Thank you, Tom. Your next question comes from the line of Brad Sills from Bank of America. Your line is open. Hey, guys. This is Adam Hunter, Brad. Congrats on the quarter, too. Um, so just on the Google partnership, also, um, can you guys share any expectations you have in terms of that being a lacrosse stock? You mentioned that the focus is on net new just now, but you know, within the, I guess, applications that you guys provide, do you expect it to benefit more towards the applications or towards the suite, or how should we be thinking about the benefits of the partnership? Uh, we'll be leading. First of all, you know, we've been working on this, you know, for uh, – the guy who runs sales at um, uh, at Google and the uh, uh, Rob Enslin and the person who runs sales here, Sam Alcarat, are colleagues from SAP. So these guys know each other really well. And uh, we've been working on aligning the sales organizations across industries, across geographies, and focusing on target strategic accounts. So this is pretty well orchestrated. And um, I mean, we, we will most certainly 
okay, be leading with applications. But where we get into large automotive companies or large financial service institutions, will they will they want to license the platform? Absolutely, and that will be available in Google's bag to sell it, and we will jointly sell it with them. But this is a you know this might be an inflection point in the hyperscale market. Got it. And then just as a follow-up, um, is there any commentary you can provide on some of the more verticals? You guys kind of called out financial services in the prepared remarks. Uh, are there any other to call out? Thank you. Anybody have any data on our distribution? Hold on, hold on uh, Adam. I think I actually have this data right here. Just give me a second. Uh, it's pretty highly diverse. Um, uh, so, well, I can't see it by percentages. Huh? Um, it, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty highly diversified, you know, across, you know, telecommunications, high tech, life science, aerospace and defense, manufacturing, financial services, utilities, oil and gas. Um, it, yeah, I don't see what the percentages are here, but it, 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 you know, with something that used to be 100% utilities not too long ago, it's gone a long way. What do I have here? This would be booking diversity. Okay, so we're looking at roughly 40% manufacturing, 7% aerospace, 3% utilities, 3%. Um, this, what is it? Oh, 27% oil and gas, 22% high tech. And then we're just kind of making inroads now into, you know, life sciences, 7% um, airspace. So that's, that's what it looks like today. Awesome. Thank you. The next question comes from the line of DJ Hines from Catacord. Your line is open. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, congrats on the quarter. Tom, I want to ask about... CRM. I mean, the commentary this quarter seemed to suggest an uptick in activity there. Um, maybe even more interestingly, on the on the SI partner side, can, can you just talk about what you're seeing with the CRM effort? And I'm curious, like, is there any installed CRM platform that you're seeing particular traction with? Any any color there would be helpful. Well, the CRM installed base is quite large. Okay, and everybody wants to go predictive. Okay, there's kind of two ways to do that, you know, and you can, you can, you know, you guys know the math better than not, but it's no way it can't be less than a half a trillion dollar market. And everybody wants to go into predictive, and there's kind of two ways to do it. You can rip and replace, or you can add on top of it. So the way that our Serum product works, it sits on top of Dynamics, on top of Salesforce, on top of Siebel, on top of SAP, on top of Viva, and it installs very quickly. It aggregates those data, and then allows you to aggregate any other data you want about the market, okay? And those data that you're going to aggregate are like three or four orders of magnitude more than the data you have a record in the CRM system, econometric data, stock prices, NLP on news, NLP on social media, NLP on analyst reports, NLP on on uh, on uh, uh, annual reports and financial statements, um, um, GDP growth rates, unemployment rates, commodity prices as it relates to that industry. Maybe it's um, 
corn and beans as it relates to ag, and there we have weather, you know, uh, wind, rain, uh, or it's in, in oil and gas, it's going to be, you know, in transportation, travel transportation, maybe it's Jet A. But when we aggregate all of these data, we can build very precise learn, machine learning models uh, uh, that, you know, for revenue prediction, revenue forecasting, product forecasting, customer churn, what have you. So we are seeing a lot of interest amongst the same partner ecosystem that we put in place in, that you might recall, at Siebel Systems. We know these guys pretty well. And they see this as an opportunity to upgrade all of their existing applications. So keep your eye on this space, AJ. This is going to be a big business for us. And, uh, and we're not going to be really, you know, we think what we're doing is entirely complementary to Salesforce, Dynamics, Siebel, SAP, and it gets the customers where they want to go quickly, and it gives the systems integrators an opportunity to generate business now in a way that provides enormous value to their customers. You're going to see also that we've, we have reinvented, and I'm not going to pre-announce it now, okay, but we have, you know, fundamentally reinvented, okay, the human-computer interaction model as it relates to CRM, and when you see it, I think you'll be quite impressed. And I've been, we've been working on this, and I personally have been working on this really hard, and it's, this is going to be a, a bigger business than I thought. Yeah, look, look forward to that. It sounds interesting. Uh, David, as a follow-up to you, do, do you have a growth rate for current non-GAAP RPO? I, I don't have a, uh, a breakout of, of current non-GAAP RPO. Okay, because it seems like that cancelable backlog portion, which is by nature multi-year, is increasingly contributing to, to non-GAAP RPO. So it, it would be helpful to get a view of that uh, at some point. So uh, th thank you, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in the queue. Thanks, Jason. The next question comes from the line of Patrick Colvin from Deutsche Bank. Your line is open. This is Dan on for Patrick. Uh, congrats on the quarter. Um, you guys said, you know, earlier in response to a question that, you know, the, the average contract size is declining uh, because you're, you know, you're selling more app applications as opposed to platform. And that makes a lot of sense. I guess my question would be on that is, um, I guess, kind of two parts. One is, is that leading to more traction with smaller customers, like actually smaller businesses, or is it still primarily very large businesses that are, you know, buying, you know, uh, you know, enterprise type apps? Or has there been any, you know, in that move toward the, the selling more applications, has that led to any, you know, more deals kind of down market at all? And then two, I mean, I guess, can you kind of comment on, you know, you said in response to another question, you mentioned that, um, you know, it's not been a change in strategy. So I wonder if you can comment kind of why you think you're seeing that shift. Thanks. Hold on. Why are we seeing what shift? To smaller uh, customers? Uh, shift toward, I guess, more applications and less of the platform. Um, well, that's what we lead with applications. I mean, that's always the way the, that's always the way the sales cycle begins with solving a business problem. 
whether it's you know anti-mining laundering, cash management, cash optimization, supply chain, customer churn, you know, we're always solving a business problem when we lead with the application. And an application might sell list price for an application might be like a half a million dollars a year. Now the um, then, and then what happens is we'll, we'll get involved in a pilot, and they'll decide they want one or two or three applications that they might license. I think our average contract, I think we've disclosed this, is is like order of 36 months or something, okay, plus or minus something. Okay, so, you know, then sometimes in the course of finding one or two or three applications, they decide they want to build 12, and then they license the 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 platform also, and they want to license the platform for, you know, 25 developers or 50 developers, so and this is multiple years, so what we thought started out as a transaction that was going to be like a million and a half dollars turns into 39, so this is how it happens. Uh, so we just let them happen at what, you know, however the customer wants to buy it. Now, there is a customer list here someplace, and yes, we are, yes, we are absolutely selling to smaller customers. There's no question about it. Um, I mean, we used to only sell to companies, but if it wasn't, you know, Royal Dutch Shell, you know, if it wasn't Bank of America, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't call on them. Okay, but here we have, you know, relatively small businesses by our standards would be places like Morsco, Ball, uh, Spearstone, uh, Skillion, Cerebral Edge, ABC Dust, and 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 so we're absolutely seeing, you know, that the you know we're not we used to be in the business of just elephant hunting, and now we're out elephant hunting and we're deer hunting and we're squirrel hunting, and uh, in in a pretty big way at global scale. Makes sense. Thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Jack Andrews from Needham. Your line is open. Oh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my question. Um, just in light of the uh, the Google announcement and just other relationships you have with companies like Microsoft and, and Snowflake, could you just update us in terms of uh, you know what what type of technology vendors do you feel are natural allies for you versus maybe other types that that you view as potentially more, more competitive? Well, natural allies would certainly be all the hyperscalers. Um, natural allies would be um, um, you know a lot of the people who make componentry uh, that work in this market, like you know, Snowflake makes a platform independent um, um, uh, a storage system, and that's certainly uh, complementary to us. I think companies like who make, who even have products that compete with us, like like AutoML. I mean, we partner with H2O, we partner with DataRobot, I think and we partner with DataRobot at Shell, and so people can use our AutoML or they can use DataRobot's AutoML. Databricks, um, many of our customers use Databricks, so we partner with them. So I think the component providers are, are you know, individually um, uh, potential partners. I don't. Do they look like distribution channels? No. Okay, I don't think they do. Um, the you know the real competitor. What we do are all those components in aggregate. And you know, Jack, where the you know the IT organization 
you know, decides that they want to build this project themselves in one of these kind of multi-year, multi-hundred million dollar science projects, all of which seem to come crashing down after a few years. And so, you know, I guess the real competitor is the CIO who wants to build it in him or herself, and we just have to let that process run its course because it's virtually impossible they're going to succeed at it. And after they get through, after they crash and burn, like they've done at virtually every one of our customers, then we come in and bail them out. It's just a, it's just a natural part of the process of adopting new technology. No, thanks. Appreciate the context. And just as a quick follow-up, um, you know, when we think about the, the cash on your balance sheet, um, I'm just curious, are, are you contemplating any sort of, uh, you know, technology-related M&A that could potentially um, accelerate what you're doing on the product development front, or um, do you feel that it's still important to keep uh, developing things uh, internally? Um, we, it's a great question, and make no mistake, we are focused on growing the business organically. Okay, so if we don't see M&A as a big part of the equation, might we buy something if we see that there's a unique piece of technology there that complements uh, our technology stack that we that makes that that would make sense for us to own it because we see there's something really unique there? Yes, we might. Okay, but M&A. There is nobody here who's in charge of that. Uh, the default answer when the bankers send us these decks about M&A is we kind of say no before we even read them. And, um, you know, we're focused on growing the business organically because I think for us to get involved in M&A would really be a distraction. I think if we stick to our knitting, okay, we continue to move the product footprint, continue to grow the customer base, continue to make our customers successful, I think everything is going to work out just fine. Uh, thanks for the caller, Tom. The next question comes from the line. Um, Pat Wall Ravens from JMP. Your line is open. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, I have one for Tom and one for Dave, if that's okay. Um, Tom, for you first, what's the opportunity look like for C3 um, in federal and, and Department of Defense? And, and as I ask that question, I realize that obviously you have to be careful what you say. But but all you have to do is go on the Department of Defense website and, you know, two weeks ago, Vice Admiral Hill was talking about the missile defense testing, which you have something in your press release that looks similar. And in June, uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks had a, a, a big thing where she was talking about the AI and data acceleration initiative. So it seems like a lot of that is out there publicly already. So whatever you can say about what the opportunity looks like for C3 uh, would be great. It's staggering, Pat. Okay, that's how big it is. It's, you know, it's endless. And, uh, I mean, you know, you know, just, you know, just from you to me, there's a really interesting book out there called Kill Chain, uh, uh, written by a guy named Christian Bros. If you don't like it, I'll give you your 19 bucks back from, uh, uh, from Amazon about kind of how the whole nature of warfare is changing between us and China and where AI fits into this. But you get to this level of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay, the, the, and, you know, all of the, of the leaders of all these ministers, all they're thinking about is, you know, AI and how they're going to AI enable everything. So um, that is a almost, that is a, 
business opportunity without bounds. Uh, one, this is one of the reasons we brought uh, General Cardone in. I had Cardone as the chairman of federal systems, and he formerly ran the, um, the U.S. Cyber Command. Um, and so he, and so Paul Nakasone, who runs the NSA and the Cyber Command, was his deputy. And so Paul knows all these guys, and you know, we do spend a lot of time in the Pentagon. And I think that, you know, to the extent that we have the opportunity to serve um, the United States government, we're privileged to do so. I think we're involved in about 12 projects today. I know that we invest a lot of time there. Uh, we recently, in addition to uh, Ed Cardone, we brought on you know, Todd Weber as the general manager of um, C3 Federal. So we are we are expanding that business, and we think that market is so big it's scary. And uh, you know, as it relates to the war that's going on between the United States and China in AI, um, if we lose that war, the story is not going to end well. And um, and 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 we think there's an opportunity for us to play a role in that. Um, you, you had a question for David? Yeah, thank you for that. And, and so, David, I think, you know, like if you look at the stock in the aftermarket now, it's down 8%. And I, I think one thing that is confusing is, I mean, last quarter you grew 26%. This quarter you grew 29 So generally people like acceleration. And then you just guided, if I'm doing my math right, the 38% growth at the midpoint for next quarter. You know, and, and usually people guide the deceleration, then try to beat it. You guys are guiding to acceleration. So normally that would be well-received, but the RPO and the billings are bouncing around so much that it's really confusing. So any any clarity you can help provide for why, you know, revenue is accelerating and yet the bookings metrics, you know, this last quarter decelerated and, and why we should have confidence in, in that revenue acceleration, I think would be really helpful. There's still a lot of nets in the booking in the in the in the in the, in the bookings pad. There's Tom, and and there's still we're still doing big deals. While we've got it, they're not as big as they used to be. There's still a lot of nets, and the you know, bottom line is we had some deals move out of Q1 and into Q2, and and you know so there's still you know do I do I believe that we have mechanisms in place to get the lumpiness out of the bookings? I do, but they're still there. David, you have anything you want to add to that? I think you, I think you captured yeah. it well. Uh, that, that, that. Uh, okay, thank you. And there are no further questions over the phone line at this time. I would now like to turn the call back to Mr. Tom Siebel uh, for the closing remarks. Sir? Okay, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time. We appreciate your, uh, you know, all of your questions and, and, and your time and we will look forward to giving you an update on the business when we see you next or at the end of the quarter, whichever happens first. So have a great day, everybody, and thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call and we thank you all for participating. You may now disconnect.